Please pray with me. And we're going to pray according to words we've already been singing together. Dear Heavenly Father, show us Christ. Show us Christ. O God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that Jesus is Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, good morning and greetings to you. I want to say a couple more words of general introduction before we dive into the message. Uh, One of them is just I want to take away any sense of discomfort because we're dressed up all fancy like this today, okay? Normally, that's not how Jim dresses, you know? He always wears his boots no matter what else he's wearing, but nevertheless, uh, we're doing this because this is a party day. This is a celebration, and it's a celebration because we are uh, confirming people and commissioning them as ministers of the gospel. And Jim hinted at this a few minutes ago, but I want to just share with you the fact that our understanding is that the clergy, and I'm one of the clergy, exists for the sake of others. In other words, we don't try to pull things towards us. We have been given ministry and authority in order to give it away and to equip, to delegate, and to encourage, and to empower other people. And so my job as a bishop is to make sure that our clergy and churches are in good shape. It's the job of the clergy to make sure that the people are well discipled and cared for and loved and ministered to and given the strength that they need. And that's in itself then not an end game because the people of God are to receive the blessings and not stop there, but for the sake of the world. Because the real action of the church is in the world. The real action of the church is the people of God taking the gospel and living the gospel in the world. And so what God has in his heart as he looks at the world is the people who don't know him. And so for that, we are equipped and we are sent to help each other, strengthen each other for the sake of the world, for the sake of others, to pass it on. So today, we're going to be raising up and commissioning and praying for a group of eight people for the purpose of giving them greater gifts and greater capacities for the sake of the world their relationship with God, to know Him, and to serve Him better. So it's a party day, all right? It's a celebration day. The other thing I want to mention about this is because in Anglicanism, we actually believe the physical things that we do have spiritual meaning and communication. So this white thing under here is representing the fact that the only reason that I am clean before God is because I have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ so that I am therefore made pure by Jesus, not by myself. And so we represent the gospel in actually the way we dress. It's the blood of Christ and what he's done for us that sets me free and cleanses me so that I can stand before you today. This stole is meant to remind us as clergy of the yoke of Jesus Christ, of the towel that he wrapped around his body when he got down on his knees and washed the disciples' feet. So when we put it on, we are to be reminded that our job is to serve the people of God. So all these things have meaning to us. And we wear this not so that we can look like cool or weird or whatever you want to say, but so that we can embody the message that we proclaim. And our entire service is meant to weave together to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope that puts you at ease a little bit. Next week when you come back, Jim's going to look normal, okay? So anyway, welcome back next week. 
Enough about, enough about me right now. Let's get into the message from God's Word. What I'm going to be sharing with you is rooted from the text in Deuteronomy chapter 4, but it's going to extend past the verses that were read today. So if you have a Bible, grab one uh, in front of you, it's in the pew or whatever, and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, because I think it's going to help you, because I'm going to bounce around this chapter quite a bit. But it's going to take me a few minutes to get there. This is not just preliminary stuff. I want to tell you and set this up so that when we get to Deuteronomy 4, you can see the points that I'm trying to make very, very quickly. The setting of Deuteronomy 4 is that Moses has gathered the nation of Israel east of the Jordan River at the edge of the Promised Land. And over the course of several weeks, he preaches to them three sermons that recount the history of their deliverance from Egypt, what happened to them at the foot of Mount Sinai, and their wanderings through the wilderness. He also is going to give them two prophetic visions, kind of extended visions of their future as the people of God. In all of these messages, what he's doing is he's wrapping up his 40 years of ministry as a pastor to the nation of Israel. And he's reminding them of who they are, and he's reminding them of their mission in the world. So you can see some echoes here because I've been talking about who we are in the world, our mission in the world. But I want to step back at this point and paint the big picture of you because the mission of the nation of Israel in the land of Palestine is step three in God's big plan of redemption for the world. And I want to set it in that context, okay? So we can make some sense out of it. Step one, God, Genesis chapter 12, called a man named Abraham to himself. This man was a pagan. I have no idea what was going on in his mind and heart, but God came knocking on his door. And he said, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your city. I want you to follow me to the place where I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And from you, I'm going to bless the entire world through you and your descendants are going to bring blessing to the entire world. So in that covenant that he made with Abraham, that promise, that relationship that was established, all the essential elements of God's redemption of every individual were set forth. And I want to remind you of what they were. The first and the fundamental is that God came to Abraham in grace. He didn't come because Abraham was better than anybody else. In fact, we know nothing about Abraham in terms of his character or his interests. God literally came knocking on his door and said, I want to choose you and use you to bring blessing to the entire world. You're going to be an agent of redemption for the entire world. And through you, blessing will come to all the nations of the world. Abraham's response was what we call faith. He simply received that gift. He said, thank you. Basically, I'll do what you tell me to do. I'll follow you. I believe in you. I trust you. And so Abraham up and left his city of Ur, took his household with him, followed God, uh, followed God's leading into the land of Palestine. In chapter 15 of Genesis, I want to pause there because something else happened. Because God came back in Genesis 15 and reiterated his promise to Abraham and established a covenant by which this was sealed. A covenant that established the relationship between God and Abraham. Now, the covenant that was made in Genesis 15, we're not going to go there, but sometime you ought to read it. It's one of the weirdest and most amazing passages in Scripture. Because in that time and period, covenants were made between two people, and they would call them cutting the covenant. And they would literally take animals, cut them in half, and the two people making the covenant would walk in between them, basically saying, if we break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to us. It cut in two, killed blood flowing everywhere. And usually it was a two-part thing. In other words, if Jim and I made a covenant to accomplish certain things, we would both walk back and forth between the dead animals. But what happened in this case, Abraham was instructed by God to set it all up, cut the animals up. He did several different kinds of animals, cut them up, laid them on either side. And then God literally put Abraham into a trance, set him aside, 
And the only person that walked between the animals that secured the covenant was God. And he walked both ways. God did all the walking between the animals while Abraham received the benefits of it. How could God be more clear? (laughs) In other words, he took all the burden of establishing a covenant through blood, bearing the weight of the covenant on behalf of Abraham, who was the beneficiary of the covenant, but it wasn't Abraham's work that made the covenant work. It was God who guaranteed the covenant for him. And that's how redemption works, folks. God takes the burden on himself to establish a relationship with us and to secure the relationship and to bear the relationship throughout all of time. Redemption is always by grace. There's a covenant that's made through grace. We are the recipients of it by faith, by saying simply thank you. We don't deserve it. It wasn't because of what we did. It is a gift of the grace of God. And so people who understand that grace become agents of blessing. And they are sent into the world to tell about the Lord, about his grace, about how you experience redemption, what he's accomplished, and about the relationship that he's bringing into our lives. That's step one. All that's just established through Abraham. Step two. Abraham's physical lineage was the nation of Israel. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob was the uh, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the nation of Israel was established and grew in the land of Egypt. But in Egypt, they had become slaves. Grew into a great nation there. And in in Exodus chapter 2, this is what we hear. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry from rescue for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groanings and catch this and remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He remembered. In other words, he brought into reality the promise he'd made to Abraham to create out of him a great nation. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He pulled Israel out of Egypt with the Great deliverance, crossing of the Red Sea, brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, he tells them what his purpose is. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I have delivered you unto what? Myself. Unto a relationship. Unto a living relationship with me. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, all the nations are mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Israel, I've gathered you to myself, and I want you to be my people and to be a kingdom of priests. It's a priest, a go-between, between God and others. I want you to be a whole nation. It's a go-between, me to the world. And so he's establishing and gathering the people of Israel, Mount Sinai. That's step two. Step three, he is taking the nation of Israel into a physical place, the promised land of Palestine, where the worship of God and the knowledge of God would be established. Be a people from whom the message of God would go out to the world. This place, Palestine, is a fascinating place. There's no accidents in God's plan. This place was an intersection of continents, one of the greatest highways of people and culture and thought and intellect and religion in all the world. It's the place where God would eventually establish step four, which is the final step of redemption, because it's to this place, city of Jerusalem, that he would send his son to live and die as one of us, become the savior of the world. Jesus, the son of God, paid the price of redemption that had been promised all the way back to Abraham. What God did with Abraham was forgiveness, but it wasn't because animals got cut up. It was because Jesus was going to die on the cross. And God applied the finished work of Jesus back to Abraham before it even happened. Jesus is the fulfillment. What happened in Genesis 15 was a picture, an icon. What happened in the temple worship was an icon. Kind of like 
go to a restaurant and you look at the menu and sometimes the, men- the menu will have pictures of what you're going to what you can order pictures look good guess what the meal's better all right <laughs> but you see the picture and you go i want that pic- i want i want that but you don't want the picture you want the meal right so genesis 15 is a picture the temple worship is a picture but the real meal literally who we feed on is jesus himself abraham step one israel is the people of god step two the land of palestine step three step four fulfillment on the cross so deuteronomy 4 is step three people are entering into the nation occupying this place of palestine fulfilling that mission by the way if you know anything about history and you do i'm sure involved military action and political activity this physical warfare but throughout the physical warfare there's some strong elements of spiritual conflict there's all sorts of questions that get raised we don't have time to explore those questions let me just tell you if there are questions that are raised about ethics and morality and there's satisfying answers to those questions it takes a little while to talk it through but if you need to do that i'm sure jim will help you with that okay good you ready for that <laughs> okay all right but seriously there's answers that there we don't have time to explore that but here's my purpose. God is sending his people in the next step of mission. And there's some important instructions and specifics about how the people of God are to go about fulfilling their mission. And that's where I want to get to finally today. I want to help you see these elements because you, as followers of Jesus Christ, are people on mission today. And the things that he tells Israel apply to us in our Christian life today. And the first point to be established is at the core, who are we as the people of God? Who are we? Look at verse 4. Deuteronomy. I've been so excited I haven't gotten there yet. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you. Do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. My first read when I read that is to focus on some key words in this passage. Listen to the statutes and the rules. Listen and do them. And my reaction initially is, oh, the first thing to be people on mission is to do good, to fulfill the law, to do all the things God tells me to do. The first thing that being on mission involves is my morality, my ethics, my obedience. And I want you to think with me. I ask the question, who are we? And what we do is not who we are, a different thing. And I said that the first thing we need to think about is who we are, not what we do. And there is who we are built into this. Listen again when I read it. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes. What does listening imply? What does it imply? Conversation, right? Relationship. Listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you. God says, I'm going to teach you. Do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, your God, the God of your fathers is giving you. I'm already giving it to you. And by the way, I am, remember, the God of your fathers, which harkens back to this whole thing we talked about Abraham, that it all started with God's grace and God's initiative. So I believe what has been embedded in this, that the most foundational statements in this verse harken back to say this to the people of Israel. As they stand on the edge of the land going out into mission, Remember that you are the people of God because you are in the covenant of grace that God established beforehand. Remember that the covenant was initiated and established by God. Remember it started with a person in a relationship with God. Remember it is by definition a covenant of grace guaranteed by God and himself. It's God's initiative and God's offer. We respond, we believe, we enter into it. And God guarantees to keep us to the end. And I'm saying that to you today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the same basis of your identity. The basis of your identity is that God has committed to you, initiated a relationship with you, pursued you, established a covenant through Jesus Christ with you. And now he says to you, by way of promise through Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you and never forsake you. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 13, 
It is God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Dear brothers and sisters, if you are followers of Jesus Christ, it did not begin with you. It began with him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus yet as your Savior, he stands knocking at the door. His desire is for you. I encourage you to realize it is not up to you to establish this. Your identity is given to you. You're a child of God through Jesus Christ. And just like a child is not born by his or her own will, you have not been born by your will, but by the will of God. He's established you as the people of God. Not only are you a person who's in covenant with God, but he's saying to Israel, but this is a God who speaks. He's in a relationship. Who wants to communicate. He spoke to Abraham and it changed Abraham's life. He spoke to Isaac, changed his life. He spoke to Jacob. Heck, Jacob even wrestled with him hand to hand. I mean, no, that's pretty close quarters. This is intense relationship. And so in our relationship with God, we wrestle with God, but God is the God who is that close, that intimate. He's speaking to us. God is in a living conversational relationship with his people. We're in a relationship. We are called to listen, called to talk, We're called to hear. We're called to pray. Because these are the words of life. We've already sung it today. I thought it was really cool. We didn't plan this ahead of time. But Jesus, uh, in John chapter 6, exactly what we're singing today. Jesus says some very hard words to to the people that are following him. He says, if you want to know me and follow the will of God, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He wasn't speaking, obviously, literally. He was speaking, but he was speaking in reality. He was pointing ahead to what we are going to do later on today in the communion. Because of what he said, there were people who were offended by that, and they walked away. And he said to his disciples, the 12, he said, well, are you going to walk away too? And Peter said to him, well, who else would we go to? Because you and you alone are the one who has the words of life. We sang that. Give the words of life. What you say is life. In John chapter 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says to the people who are following him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He goes on to say, I'm the only person in history that can set you free for God, because I am God. Here, rescue. Listen to my word. So the first thing to remember in a life of mission is the foundational reality of who we are. We are the covenant people, and we are the conversational people. We are the people who are in the covenant of grace, and we're in a living relationship with God. The covenant of grace is not just a fixed identity. It's a relationship. Father to child. Father to child. And there is a desire that God has that we might know him, be his people in reality. That's where we begin when we go out in mission. Where do we go from there? Next step. Remember and tell your own testimony of deliverance from bondage. Look at chapter five, uh, 4, verse 15. He speaks to Israel and he says, Therefore watch yourself very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. The likeness of any animal that was on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water under the earth. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things which the Lord has, your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Folks, when Israel was bound in slavery in Egypt, they were in a pagan land. And in Egypt, guess what was worship? Birds, frogs, snakes, fish, sun, moon, and stars. And for 400 years, the Israelites as a people had been in that environment. But God rescued them and delivered them. And he's saying, remember what I did for you. But verse 20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance to the, as you are this day. God has delivered you from slavery and from paganism and from insanity. You were cogs in the wheel of Egypt's economic program. 
You were used by Egypt on which to build on your backs their entire economic plan. You were just part of a machine. God has delivered you and set you free. Remember the story of how God's grace came into focus for you. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a story. You have a story of being set free. I do. I can tell you lots and lots of stories about being set free. And as you go in mission, you know what the core of your mission is? Simply tell people what Jesus has done for you. It's not any more sophisticated than that. Let me tell you who I know and what he's done for me. And that's where it all begins. So tell your story. Tell your testimony as you are on mission. Step three. Who are you? What do you say? Your testimony. Step three is let the word of God soak into you and genuinely transform you. Look back at verses five through eight. Same chapter. See, I've taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Folks, the laws of God are not that we might obey God to please him. The laws of God are how by w- the means by which our life is transformed. And underneath what God tells us to do, the commands that he gives us, even the things that were read today in Romans chapter 12 about showing hospitality and loving one another and not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. These are ways in which we are healed and set free of the sin in our life. Over time, transformation happens as we walk with God. Listen to the statutes of God that you may live. Become a people who are wise, who are skillful at living well. Let the word of God soak further into you so that you can get to understanding why God wants us to live the way he wants us to live. Let me give you an example, very simple. Wisdom. It's no surprise to us, for instance, we learn that sexual purity and monogamy are the surefire protection against AIDS, STDs, psychological fragmentation that comes when families fall apart, when we don't know who we are in relationship with, the breakup of family, or the failure to to even be able to form a family. Sexual purity and godliness in terms of our sexuality has that immediate impact of giving us an effective and meaningful life. God seems to know what he's talking about. And he says, I command sexual relationships to be held within heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman for life. Now, let go to a deeper understanding. Because if you begin to live that way, that's that makes sense and it works. It's wise. But underneath it, over time, you begin to understand that that is actually the path of true love. It's not just smart. It's path of love. And in that context, we begin to understand what true love is because we don't, we stop looking at people as sexual objects. Start understanding that there's more to a person than their sexual activity. Our world says that you are your sexual activity. God says you're much more than that. There's much more to you, much more beauty, much more integrity than you are. And there's an opportunity for us when we stop looking at people as sexual objects to see what love really means and how do you really love. That's how God's word works. It takes us into transformation. So as you walk with God in the world, People will see transformation. They will see the wisdom and they will see the understanding. They will see that you're somebody who embodies love, wisdom, understanding. Fourth, look for the miracles in your life. Okay, so I'm going to review. I'm going to keep reviewing who you are. Covenant of grace and in a conversation with God. Your own testimony of deliverance. 
the transformation, the specific transformations in your own life, in your own stories of transformation. Fourth, look for the miracles in your life. Look over at verse 33 that we were already had read today. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you've heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? A trials and signs and wonders and war and mighty hand and outstretched arm with deeds of terror which the Lord did for you. Folks, if you are a, have a living relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, your life is inevitably a series of large and small miracles if you have eyes to see it. So ask God to open your eyes to see what's going on. He generally operates by the rules by which he's governed the universe, but there are times when he does miracles because God is never bound by these rules. He can go outside the rules of, of, of normal science or whatever you want to say in order to intervene on behalf of our lives. And there's big miracles and there's small miracles. I have... Stories of big miracles of angelic interventions and radical healings and deliverances from demons that I've been a part of in other people's lives. Dramatic stuff, I could tell you. Open your eyes wide. But I also have lots and lots of stories of small miracles of answered prayer. In fact, I think God offers that far more than we realize. Uh, let me give you an example, just a very small miracle. A couple of months ago, I was talking to my son, and I unintentionally falsified a story. I was telling him about my own life, and it was a pretty important story. In my mind, I didn't realize I was saying the wrong thing because what I I had pictured in my mind so vivid it seemed real. So in my mind, this is just the way it happened. Left it at that. That was a Tuesday, as a matter of fact. On Wednesday morning, I was reading my Bible, and Psalm 51, verse 6 says, You desire truth in the inward being. I stopped at that point. It was like God said, Pray that prayer. I prayed that prayer, Lord, you desire me to be truthful to the core of my being. Make sure I lay myself out before you. If anything I've been untruthful, let me know. And think you think about it through the day. Thursday morning, woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and immediately I remember my conversation with my son. Immediately went back to that almost 48 hours before. And I suddenly remembered and reflected on that conversation and realized, oh my goodness, that wasn't true. I thought it was. As I thought back on the event I was describing to my son, it was significantly off base. And I immediately got up out of my bed. Wrote my son an email and said, you know what? I am so sorry, but I did not tell you the truth. And I didn't, I didn't realize I was doing it. Why did that happen? Why did it happen? Because it wasn't my conscience. It wasn't my thought process. It wasn't, it's because I prayed a prayer, Psalm 51, 6, Lord, please reveal any place in my life where I have spoken untruth. And he woke me up and by the power of the Spirit showed me a place where I had unintentionally told a falsehood so I could deal with it and get it cleared up. To me, that's a miracle. It's the small miracles of what it means to live a life in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Who are you? What is your testimony? How is God transforming you? What are the miracles that are going on in your life? And then finally, the last thing that God says about us being on mission is pass the message on to your children. Verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb And the Lord said to me, gather the people unto me that I may let them hear my words and learn to fear me all the days of my life. God, when he speaks to us, always has three generations in mind. He's always saying, you, your children, grandchildren. And if you are not blessed with children and grandchildren yourself, he's speaking to the church about the future. Because the whole church needs to hear this. Because, no simple principle, if you're not growing younger, you are surely growing older. So kids and grandkids are critical for the ongoing work of the Church of the of Redeemer Anglican Church in Parkersburg, West Virginia. And if that's not your particular story, it is your 
collective story. And we are all to bear importance of understanding the gift of life itself and the gift of children and grandchildren for us. And to pass it on. Because again, all the way back to the beginning of this whole conversation, the way that God comes to us is he comes to us in relationship. Because of the value that he sees in us as people. value he sees in our children. The great stories of Beatrice Rose Dasher, our little granddaughter who has been in the uh, pediatric intensive care, who has been in a coma, who's been on full life support, is the incredible realization that there's a child who has done not one single thing except every once in a while look up at us. But the overwhelming story of love that has grown and spilled out and spread through her just blows us all away. My daughter was telling me on Thanksgiving, she said, I don't understand it, Dad, but she said, the love that has flowed into our world through B, I can't explain it. I said, well, I can because it's what God is up to and through the lives of people. And God says, make sure that you tell the story. Tell the story of your own deliverance. Tell the story of your transformation. Tell the story of the miracles in your life. Tell your children and tell the people in the world who you are and what I've done for you. Today, the mission of the church is very different from Israel's mission. We are not to buckle on our armor and pick up our swords and go kill pagans, okay? The present work of the mission is the final stages. It's centered in the final stages. Step four, the person of Jesus. What we're here to do is to tell people about Jesus and how he's delivered us from our, from our insanity and death. How he's transforming us through his word and the Holy Spirit. How he's at work. How he's doing miracles in our lives. The surprises and the unexpected things that he does in our life. The importance of next generation and other people. And even that, friends, if I may just pause and say this, our world teaches us that it's all about me. God's word teaches it's, it's all about looking beyond myself for the sake of others. The people who are coming today to be confirmed are entering into this mission. And I hope that you will take to heart what I've shared with you. Think it through. It's not been an easy sermon, but I trust that it's been instructive and helpful for you as you see your life and the purpose of your life. Heavenly Father, May Christ be exalted and revealed until all will say that Jesus is. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.